This particular uh, session is specifically on abuse. It is at parts uh, diff very difficult to listen to. And because I know the statistics, I know that I have victims in the room. And so I'm giving everybody a heads up. And please, if it's overwhelming for whatever reason, go outside and look at the pretty leaves or something. You know, it's recorded. You can come back to it. Don't uh, <clears throat> let yourself get overwhelm yourself. So let's start with another story, which is about another church in another time and place. <clears throat> Some years ago, I was invited to Ghana to speak for a conference uh, dealing with violence against women and children. And while there, I was taken to visit Cape Coast Castle, where hundreds of thousands of Africans were forced through its dungeons and onto slave ships through the door of no return. The castle <clears throat> had five dungeon chambers for males and two for females. Descending down into the darkness of one of those male dungeons was claustrophobic. In that place, 200 men were shackled and chained together for about three months before they were shipped across the Atlantic. <laughs> when we stood in one of the male dungeons listening to the darkness, to the horrific story that our guide told us. He said this, do you know what's above this dungeon? Of course, we shook our heads now. The chapel. Directly above 200 shackled men, some of them dead, some of them screaming, all of them living in filth, sad God worshipers. They sang, they read the scriptures, they prayed, I suppose they took up an offering for the less fortunate. The slaves could hear the service. The worshipers could sometimes hear the slaves, but not usually because they always had somebody down there making sure they kept quiet so they would not disturb worship. It took my breath away. And I, who earned my living with my mouth, could think of nothing to say. The evil, the suffering, the humiliation, the overwhelming nature of it, and the visual parable was quite stunning. The people in the chapel were numb to the horrific trauma and abuse directly underneath them. In fact, they were actively complicit. They were prospering over what they, uh, by what they were doing. So under the form of worship in that chapel in Ghana lay the darkness of slavery, oppression, and tyranny, all things that blight and destroy humans created in the image of God. But I think that you know that Christianity does not look like being folded up with evil and worshiping on top of dungeons. Following Christ does not look like complicity with a system that butters our bread and fills our coffers on the backs of those created in the image of God. It does not look like praying and singing and giving money on top of screams, unspeakable suffering and filth and death. During the course of being in that dungeon, our guide <clears throat> pointed up to the church above and said this, heaven above, hell below. But I would argue that heaven was not above. That's not what heaven does. And it is what heaven does uh, that we're actually here today. Heaven leaves the chapel. Heaven goes down into the dungeon in order to bring out those who are enslaved there into the light and freedom so that they in turn can go back and bring out more. So I want to invite you today to enter the dungeon of abuse with me. We don't have to go very far. It's in our homes, it's in our schools, it's in our neighborhoods, it's in our military, it's in our churches. When I first started working with victims 47 years ago, the church largely ignored and often actively denied the dungeon of abuse. We did not believe it actually existed, and we were certain it never occurred in the homes that were represented in our pews or the lives of our parishioners, and never, never did it occur within the church itself. Sadly, it has taken the media and the courts to make it abundantly clear that sexual abuse is in all such places, 
and has even been perpetrated or covered up by some we have held in high esteem. So I'm very grieved that it is the media and not the voice of God's children that have brought attention to this terrible wrong. But I believe with all of my heart that like our Lord, who was anointed to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted and to set captives at liberty, that you and I are called to leave the comfort of our chapels and enter into the devastating suffering of those who have been shattered by the evil of abuse. Jesus demonstrated in the flesh the character of God. We are to do the same. When God's people worship over and separate from dungeons, untouched by them, they are not worshiping the God of scriptures. There's nothing in the scripture to suggest that being complicit, neutral, or uncaring and deaf to the cries of suffering human beings is ever godly. God has sown his life in you and in me. And in the midst of this dark and fallen world filled with blasted and ruined humanity, he has sown his life in us and then he has flung us out. He has, however, also made it clear that the enemy has sown seed as well. And it is growing and maturing right beside the wheat. It is with us. It is not just out there. God has said so, and he has said it will be that way until he returns. The Cape Coast dungeons are under the chapel. They were not in a separate building or fort. They were not outside the walls of the fort. Our God has called us not to ignore the dungeons in, around, under our sanctuaries. Ananias and Sapphira, Simon Magus, the man in the Corinthian church who had sex with his mother, they were part of the church. They were not out there, they were in here. So as we consider the topic of abuse today, we must be aware of the fact that it is not a problem out there in the world alone, though it certainly exists out there. It is also among the people of God. We fail to understand and believe our Lord if we think otherwise. So come with me and look into this dungeon of shattered, wounded, and confused human beings our God so loves some of whom attend our churches. Sexual assault is said to be the nation's most rapidly growing crime. Almost all information that we have about abuse and rape depends on information volunteered by the victims themselves. So obviously the true extent of abuse is unknown because many, uh, many things favor non-disclosure. This is as true in the church as it is in the culture, sometimes more so. Someone is sexually assaulted in the United States every two minutes. This, is as, this childhood sexual abuse occurs in the lives of one in four females and one in six males before they turn 18. You think about a women's Bible study or a men's group or whatever and you start to count off in your head and it will bring to life for you what those statistics mean. Sexual abuse against boys has been called America's hidden epidemic. The average age for sexual abuse for girls begins at six and for boys at the age of 10. The majority of abusers are males. Three to 7% are females. Please note that means there are female abusers. Most abusers are considerably older, though in recent years there has been a troubling increase in younger perpetrators. Obviously, this has sig a significance for us as we consider church policies and care of the little ones. One in five women in the United States have experienced rape. 44% of the victims are under 18, and 93% know their attackers. One in five women are raped during the course of their college years. And as we know from things like Me Too, many of these have been covered up for the sake of the institution involved. No one in this room wants an organization they are in to be in the news for the next Nasser or Sandusky. Many of you are part of institutions that bear the name of our Lord Christ. Again, in his name means literally in his character. 
To cover up such things for the sake of an institution is the equivalent of finding a lump in your body and hiding it to preserve your life. Stop and think about the numbers that I've mentioned in the context of your own church or institution and you begin to see the frequency of these crimes. <clears throat> Listen carefully. Rape is an act of violence. It is not sex. There's violence by guns, there's violence by fists, and there's violence by sexual acts. Violence by guns and fists is not sport. It is criminal. Violence by sexual acts is not sex. It is criminal. Given the impact of sexual violence on an individual life, on the church, given the frequency of its occurrence, it is absolutely crucial that we understand the effects of such things and what leads to healing. And again, don't think that these things happen to females alone. Male rape occurs all around the world. Boys are raped by the bigger and stronger, by teachers and coaches, by pastors and priests and Boy Scout leaders. There was an article in the American Medical Association Journal that said boys born in poverty, raised in homes without a father, are at greater risk for sexual abuse and rape. By age 12, the rate of their using alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, and IV drugs was 25 to 50 times higher for boys who have been sexually abused. Abused boys have 12 times the normal suicide rate. And there's been recent research talking about the climbing suicide rate among adolescents in this country. For many of them, this is underneath it. They go on to have higher rates of mental illness. <clears throat> we have young men in our circles who struggle with some of these external things. Have we ever thought to ask them what's under? The silence surrounding the abuse of males has left an untold number to suffer in silence. One out of every 10 rape victims is male. Males 18 to 24 and in college, now these are supposed to be the terrific years, right? are five times more likely to be raped than males in the general population. Victims of rape, both male and female, are three times more likely to be depressed, 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, 26 times more likely to abuse drugs, and four times more likely to commit suicide. Obviously, victims of abuse and rape constitute a vulnerable population Though often not named, it is frequently in the room. It is here today. It is in our churches and our institutions. Victims of domestic violence are 95% female. Statistically, 31% of women in this country will experience at least one episode of violence from a husband or boyfriend. More than three women are murdered daily by their husbands or boyfriends. Pregnant women are more likely to be victims of homicide than to die of any other cause. It is the leading cause of injury in females ages 15 to 44, more than rape, mugging, and car accidents combined. The statistics do not change within the walls of Christian churches and organizations. Given the impact of abuse on an individual life, on society and on the church, and the frequency of its occurrence, it is crucial that the church not be silent or uneducated. Not only does God call us not to be silent, we are called to be an active, living, on the ground refuge and place of hope for, he and for hope and healing. Anything less is a failure to demonstrate his character in this world. So how can you, both individually and corporately, be a sanctuary for those who have been wounded by abuse? In order to do this, we must first get inside what it's like to be a victim. So I'm going to tell you some stories. They are hard to hear. They are all true. The first one is about a girl who grew up in a loving and kind home. Her parents loved each other their children, and many others down through the years. That love was tested many times. They moved every two years, 
And when, the, and the, <clears throat> when the father had to be absent in another country for 12 months, and also when years later he developed an illness that lasted for 32 years, causing him to be increasingly debilitated. The girl loved her daddy. He was quiet, rarely angry, kind, and had impeccable integrity. He was very bright, and he used to challenge his daughter's thinking with difficult questions, map reading, and word games. She grew up to know and worship the God of her parents and to spend years loving others in their suffering, just as she had watched her mother love her father in his suffering, knowing that all things must be done with grace and integrity. The second girl was a mistake. She was meant to be a boy, and upon her return from the hospital, her father stubbed his cigarettes out on her tiny heels because she was not what he wanted. She grew up in filth and neglect. She was brutally battered and sexually abused by her father, her uncle, her cousins, and many other men. She was trafficked at an early age across state lines before trafficking was a word, and watched her father hold out his hands to receive money that she had earned for him. Her mother sent her to school and to church only when there were no obvious external marks on her body. Her daddy was an alcoholic, a rapist, a batterer, full of rage, and a seller of girls. She grew up thinking she was trash, full of terror and fear, not even knowing what love looked like if it had walked into the room. She rarely spoke, but she loved books and read voraciously when allowed. She grew up longing for the God she heard about when her father dropped her off at church, but she was quite certain that God would not look at her or love her because how could God love anyone who was nothing but trash? No one at church ever asked questions, though she was obviously a neglected child and frequently absent. She assumed it was because it was true that she did not matter. Now you pause for a minute with me. What are the lessons of these two fathers? What model do they give to these two females for the word father? These two girls, grown into women, come and sit in our pews or churches. Some of you are pastors and you stand up to preach and deliver to those in the pews the words of our God about who he is and about his great love demonstrated on the cross and that he is our father. What will these women hear? Will they hear different things? You will teach about God's greatness and power, and the first will be grateful and rest in it, and the second will wonder why it was absent in her life. You will teach about the love of God as seen in Christ, and the first girl will know it for herself, and the second will believe that you're speaking the truth, but just as certain that that love is for others and not for her. You will say, God is our refuge in trouble. What will they think? You will say, God does not abandon us, ever. What will they think? You will say that Jesus told the little children to come to him and not stop them. What will they think? You will teach that our God hates evil of all kinds, and the first will see and know it is true, and the second will think that it either means her, because she herself is evil, or at least it does not refer to sexual abuse because nobody ever spoke about that subject in church. Do you see? There's a third woman in our pews. Listen to her story. She grew up in a home where she felt loved, but it was a bit chaotic and her parents were stressed. There were many children, the money was tight, and her mom struggled with depression. The little girl was lonely. One day, a friend invited her to come to her church with her. They had a great youth group, and the young pastor who ran it was energetic, and he had a pretty wife. So she went, and she loved it. So she went every week for months. The youth pastor was a lot of fun, and he taught them about God, and she was hungry to know more. And he paid attention to her. And then he offered to teach her individually so she could learn more about God. And he would take her to the local deli and get her a sandwich and listen and answer her questions about God. It was wonderful. She felt special. She felt like she mattered to the youth pastor, but even more that she mattered to God. And then one day it got weird. 
youth pastor started talking about how special she was and how he wanted to see more of her. He started touching her. She didn't like it, but she was afraid to say so. Maybe she just misunderstood. Eventually, one day, he drove her home and on the way forced her into sex. She was terrified, in pain. She was 13 years old. She tried to tell her friend from church. The friend's mother told the senior pastor, but he never called her. No one asked her questions, and someone in the church eventually sat her down in one of the pews after a church service and said she probably should not keep coming to that church anymore because they did not want her to damage the youth pastor's reputation. Her friend quit talking to her even at school, so she disappeared. She read in the paper many years later that that youth pastor had been arrested. It appears she was not the only one. No one came to speak to her about it. She never told her story again. 20 years later, she's sitting in a pew at your church, hungry for the God she longed for as 13 and absolutely terrified, afraid that her search will yet again result in hurt and denial and silence. It took tremendous courage for her to walk across the threshold and to sit in the pew. And she will hear some of you teach and wonder what you would say if you knew her story. She is afraid to hear what God thinks of her and yet remains hungry for his love. Will she ever hear the truth about sexual abuse from a pulpit or in a Sunday school class or a youth group? How do you think she would feel if a pastor, Sunday school teacher, male leader asked to meet with her? What are the lessons of the church for this woman? That it is a place of worshiping God, a refuge, a sanctuary, that sheep, sheep can safely graze inside its walls, that truth is taught and desired, that godliness is sought ever and sin will be dealt with no matter where it is found, that the good and great shepherd says to let the little ones come to him and don't hinder them, and his church does the same thing, that the church is a safe place for little ones and seeks to do nothing to hinder them, but feeds them, protects them, and ensures their safety. Michael went away to overnight camp when he was seven. He was scared and homesick. He didn't know any of the other boys. His counselor paid him special attention and it made him feel important, but then it got strange and scary. The counselor would teach the Bible study at night and then have Michael take a walk with him in the woods and make him do things he didn't like. It kept happening every night. He tried to tell the camp nurse, but she told him he must be wrong, you see, because the counselor that he had was the son of the director, and he was a very nice kid, and he would never do anything like that to one of the boys. Michael is now 35. He is married, two kids, and he's come to your church. He's terrified to tell his story. He's never told it to anyone. He fears that if he told it, the immediate response would be to question his sexuality. He's always feared that response. He has a significant pornography addiction that no one knows about, even his wife. He does not understand why he cannot stop. What do you think he would think about men in power in the church? How safe would he feel telling the truth? How comfortable would he be in the men's ministry, especially when they start talking about things like transparency? What might he believe God thinks about him? He's hurting himself, his wife, he's full of shame. He feels like he has no place to go where he can speak the truth. What will you say that will help him see that it is a safe place? What will you offer him that will encourage him to tell the truth? What will you say in your sermons, your teachings, your small groups that might give him hope and a little bit of courage to say what happened to him? One more story. Sarah and her husband attend your church. He plays on the softball team. He counts money for the offering. Sarah is very quiet, doesn't say much. But she helps out in some Sunday school classes. They have two children who are also very quiet and polite. 
And one day she asks for an appointment and she comes to the pastor's office and she's obviously very nervous and she can't look him in the face and her hands are very fidgety. She says she's afraid. The pastor says that's okay. And he waits to see what she will say. And eventually she says, well, my husband gets angry sometimes. And over time, little by little, you learn that he beats her until she is bruised, where it cannot be seen. He bites her, he's held a gun to her head, and he terrifies his children. You're stunned. <laughs> this is a man who helps out at church. How could he be such a vicious and dangerous man and you not see it or know it? What will you say? Will you send her back into danger? Because marriage is sacred and she should love her husband? Surely she's misunderstood. Surely it really isn't like that. Will her safety be tossed aside so you can keep your assumptions about that man safe instead of her? How do you think she thinks about God? You stand up in church and you sing, a mighty fortress is our God. Will you be one for her? She heard you teach about marriage maybe and she's heard everyone at church teach about, but she's never heard anyone at church teach about abuse in marriage. It's never been mentioned. She doesn't know how God thinks about it. So let us go into the experience of abuse and listen and see. Historically, when someone has endured abuse, a traumatic event, they have often been diagnosed with what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. In recent years, our understanding of trauma has grown and we have come to realize that many people do not experience trauma as a one-time event but actually have lived with relentless, ongoing trauma. Children have gone through the developmental years marinating in trauma, and it has shaped every aspect of who they are. They're literally marinating in evil. Ongoing sexual abuse, domestic violence, verbal battering, growing up in a violent neighborhood, trauma continues to shape over the lifespan. The stressors are repetitive and chronic. They usually involve direct harm or neglect by those who should have been caregivers. So how the brain works, how the body works, how the self is understood, how thoughts are organized, how the world is labeled, emotions regulated, and relationships understood, all have their roots in the life-destroying acid of trauma. I'm always reminding counselors that when a trauma victim talks to you about their experience and uses a word to describe something, the word does not mean to them what it means to us. So somebody says, I feel afraid, and we think, oh, I know what afraid is. Or I feel sad all the time, or I'm overwhelmed. Those are all words all of us use. And when we hear another person use them, we assume we understand. When there has been significant trauma in somebody's life, we do not understand. As a result of chronic interpersonal trauma, an individual develops high vigilance, constant anticipation of danger, chronic anxiety, and terror. The person is never at ease, ever. All of their psychological energy is based by necessity toward coping, surviving, rather than learning or growing. So rather than learning and imagining and experimenting and growing, they are instead learning to fear and to hide and to self-protect and to pretend. They have been betrayed and often separated from those who should be caring and nurturing and they cannot find care or assistance and safety as there is no safe person out there. And because of ongoing threats, they, they constantly live with fear, and they do not know how to recognize safe people. So they repeatedly in life end up with unsafe people. Many have experienced and witnessed atrocities such as these, and they bring them to our churches, hidden away but very alive. They have or will experience these things sometimes within churches or Christian institutions. All of these things which are things we find difficult to comprehend or hold in our minds, are endured by precious human beings. And they result in traumatized human beings. 
Victims live with recurring, tormenting memories of the trauma, witnessed or born. It affects their sleep. It makes nightmares. It destroys relationships, their capacity to work and study. It torments their emotions and shatters their faith and mutilates hope. Many are rendered silent. Trauma is indeed extraordinary, not because it rarely happens, but because it has the capacity to overwhelm all the normal human coping things that you and I use every day to deal with life. It swallows up and destroys normal human ways of living. It does not take much thought to see what these things would do to a person who is trying to learn and study or manage a life or manage a relationship. The usual response in human beings to atrocity is to try and remove it from the mind. Those who have been traumatized want to flee the memory. They want to forget somehow. And we who hear it find we want to flee also. We find it too terrible to consider and incomprehensible, too hard to put into words. And so we choose often not to believe the story, thus protecting ourselves, not the victim. That's why we use the phrase unspeakable atrocities, because there literally are no words that suffice. The great tension, of course, is the futile attempt to forget what is unspeakable but it continues to be alive and scream in the brain. There's a push-pull between the need to forget and the need to speak, which is basically the central dialectic of trauma. And that tension is not only experienced by individuals and families, but by churches and schools and nations at times. And it is experienced not only by those who have been traumatized, but also by those who have borne witness to it. I know something of this tension. I have seen this push-pull in my clients who are too terrified to tell me the truth and to speak about it, but who cannot forget. I've seen it in families and churches, institutions, and yes, nations, where they deny both the existence of the evil and trauma in their midst as well as its impact. And I know this tension exists in those who bear witness because it exists in me. We see it on television or the internet Somebody tells us of an atrocity, and soon after we look for a way to back away from it and remove ourselves. Such stories threaten our comfort, our position, our system. They make life uncomfortable, scary. We prefer that they stay in the dungeon. Traumatized people need attention and assistance, often for a very long time, depending on the story. We are busy people doing important things. The trauma stories of our families, our institutions and organizations get buried, and geographical distance and the push of a button enables us to do the same thing with entire nations. Ask Rwanda. Ongoing abuse in a life results in a broken identity. Remember I said earlier, you'll never meet a human being who was not created in the image of God. That identity gets broken by trauma. Every individual you will ever meet, the word says, is knit together by God in their mother's womb. But you cannot be repeatedly abused and not have that shape your I am. Abuse teaches people they are trash, expendable, shameful, and bad. Abuse is crushing, oppressive, and silencing. And any and all kinds of abuse always do spiritual damage. It hides the love of the Father. It renders any idea of refuge impossible to hold or believe. It shatters any thoughts of a safe shepherd or a safe place, let alone one who gives his own life for the sake of the lambs. Humans, you see, learn about the abstract or the intangible things through the concrete, the tangible. So what understanding, whatever understanding you and I have about words like love or trust or safe come from experiencing people who demonstrated those qualities. So what happens when daddy says he loves mommy and then beats her up? Or what teaching occurs when a youth pastor teaches about God's love and forgiveness and then molests the girls he's teaching? Or what does an abuse victim seeking safety learn when she comes to her pastor for help 
And she suggests that the reason she was raped was because she had certain clothes on, or her husband hits her head and therefore you must submit to his battering, or the sexual abuse you experienced at the hands of a youth pastor was just a mistake and don't we all make mistakes and we should forgive each other. Not only do humans learn about the abstract by way of the concrete, as adults we continue to learn that way. We are taught about the unseen by way of the seen. We're of the earth. God teaches us eternal truths through earthly things. So we grasp a little bit of eternity by looking at the ocean. Or we get a glimmer of infinity by looking at the sky. We learn about the shortness of time by the quick disappearance of a vapor. And Jesus taught us the same way. You know, he, he said some very strange things. I am bread. I am light. I'm water. I'm a vine. And we look at what he said and we learn about the unseen. I mean, God in the flesh stands up and says, I'm a door. Now, that's a very strange thing for a person to say. <laughs> the stranger thing is we understand what he's talking about. <laughs> you consider the sacraments, water, bread, and wine. You know what that is? the diet of a peasant. We're taught about the holiest of things through the diet of a peasant. And this method is used all the way through understanding the character of God himself. Because God came and put flesh on. He walked around in skin. He explains himself to us by way of the temporal. You want to understand how God thinks about children? Look at Jesus and how he treated children. You want to know what God thinks about women? Watch Jesus with women. You want to grasp how he teaches, treats the diseased or the poor or the oppressed? Watch him. Look at his actions. Look at his words. Anything you and I do in those same arenas that do not look like Jesus teaches lies about God. I fear we in the church down through the centuries have broken God's heart with the lies we have taught others by our expositions and our lives. Grievously, we have, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, taught these lies by word and deed and by cover-up, preserving our places and positions and institutions at the expense of the vulnerable. We have gathered the power of our systems up and crushed already broken lambs. You and I have men and women in our churches who have suffered and continue to suffer from abuse of many kinds. Some have tried to tell and were not believed. Many have never spoken. Many, maybe most, have never heard anything about the subject from a pulpit or a class. They have never heard what God has to say about such life-shaping evil. They were never taught that the Aslan of Narnia roars in the face of such evil. Some of them have experienced that abuse within the confines of a church and it's been done in God's name. And their presence in our pews is out of desperation and hunger and great courage. Cape Coast Castle in Ghana is a powerful parable. The people of God worshiping God sitting on top of dungeons filled with suffering and tormented humanity. They were living their lives in a way that was diametrically opposed to the God they said they were worshiping, the one who left glory and beauty and safety and descended into the dungeons of this world and our hearts. Those chapel goers missed him, didn't they? They taught lies about God through their lives. They stayed clean and separate. They made a world of money. I suppose they gave some of it to God. I pray the church in the 21st century will not be like those chapel goers. I pray she will go and follow her Lord down into the dungeons where there is sexual abuse and rape and violence and manipulation and lies and deception and the abuse of power and the shattering of precious lives. If she does not, she's not like her Lord, no matter what she says. And in fact, if she does not, her own heart is a dungeon filled with distance and separateness, selfishness and complicity with evil. When our God interfaces with this world, he leaves the higher and descends. He leaves beauty and enters chaos. He leaves pure and walks into filthy. 
and he demonstrates that God does not just speak about these things, but that he also acts first in the dungeons of human hearts and then through those human beings out into the dungeons of this world. Jesus demonstrated in the flesh who God is. We are to do the same. And that is when his church becomes a healing community. When God's people worship over and separate, they are not worshiping the God of the scriptures. There is nothing in the scriptures to suggest that being complicit, neutral, or uncaring to the cries about the cries of human beings is godly. Those scriptures do say that the dungeons of Cape Coast Castle were below because they were first present in the hearts of those worshipers. Remember the three girls and the boy and the woman whose story I told? I am the first girl, blessed by God, loved by my parents, kept safe, taught to love and serve God. The other three are women I have cared for. The second one, trafficked, neglected, and brutally abused, at some point in her life was loved well by a pastor's wife who eventually brought her to see me. She was one of my very early teachers about abuse. I became her student. Her battered body eventually gave out, and she is with Jesus now. The third, she still hasn't told the church her story. She's afraid to. She faithfully attends and is hungry for God, but she knows all too well that those in the church can be in high positions and look caring and be a dungeon. So does the boy who has still not told his pastor, but has told the truth of his abuse to a counselor. It took him two years to do that. And they are discussing talking to the pastor together. He and the third girl, no perpetrators, can dress up well and smile and speak Christianese and recite scripture. So does the battered and terrified wife and mother whose act of courage was greeted with verses about God's protection and something about submission and sent home. Her children are orphans. He killed her. Nobody says he didn't mean to. And now he sits in a prison. Offenders volunteer and serve on boards and drop money in the offering plate. They teach Sunday school and work at camps. Sometimes they are teachers or camp counselors or youth of, of youth or of missionaries or senior pastors or heads of Christian organizations. We judge by what our eyes see and what our ears hear. And someone says, such a person has been sexually abusive, and we say it cannot be so, and we turn a deaf, if, deaf ear to the screams in the dungeon. Like those in the chapel, we just keep on singing. We are stunned. It cannot be true. Surely there's a misunderstanding. There's some confusion. We want to assume everybody's like the first girl, like me. And sometimes everybody does indeed look like me, but they are not. My work for 47 years in the Christian world says that the expectation that everybody is like me is a lie. We fool ourselves and we fail to believe our Lord when we think such things cannot happen in our circles. He told us otherwise. He said it was the similarity to wheat that exposes the maliciousness and deception of the enemy. He did it on purpose to look like the good. That's the point. And we're also told that the enemy came while men slept. Those in Cape Coast Castle were spiritually sleeping. They bought the lie that power, success, and money, or whatever else it was they saw it ought to be protected, even if it meant treating precious human beings as if they were trash. They did this even as they climbed the stairs to worship God. They looked like wheat, but true wheat does not enslave, destroy, and abuse other people. Understanding someone's character only becomes possible on the basis of manifestation. We are known by our fruit, not just our words. We are known by what we flesh out 
in our lives and our relationships. We cannot find out if a person is orthodox by examining their words. The final test is the fruit of the character, for it is the fruit that tells about the inner life of the tree. Henry Burton said this, conduct is character in motion for humans do what they themselves are. That the tares are among the wheat means there's a mingling in our circles between the counterfeit and the real. And the tares are so like the wheat you can't see it at first. It's the enemy's mission of imitation and it's working very well. But no matter how closely they are planted or how alike they seem, in time, the difference is apparent. You know, I don't know if you have dandelions here, but in Pennsylvania, we have dandelions. You, know? you, you pull them out because they don't look like the grass. You can see them. You don't have to wait for the little yellow flower. You can do by the leaves. If they look like grass, though, you would miss them until the flower came. That's when you would know. You would only know them by what they produced. You see, the essential power of those who name the name of Christ can be imitated by a false power. True purity is counterfeited by false sanctity, which feeds on external things. We can know and sing and repeat the word of God and its harvest be absent in our lives. Wherever in the midst of suffering and sorrow and groaning, the Son of Man plants a child who is indeed obedient to the King. He is working toward the healing of the wounds of humanity. He's working for the drying of the tear and turning the groaning into an anthem of praise. That's how he establishes his kingdom, not by our buildings and programs and systems, but by someone full of Christ. He influences the world through his people, not through organizations. Our effect depends upon the extent to which the word that we know has transformed our lives. The natural development of Christ in us is humility, righteousness, and service. If those things are not there, and sometimes you can have what looks like righteousness and see lots of service, but there's no humility. These are the mark of those in whom God is incarnate. Always likeness to Christ. Unnatural development results in loftiness, pride, dominance, coercion, protection of the system in the name of God. Test yourself and others by this. He that is greatest, let him be a servant. True ministry is not domination, one in the name of Christ, the claiming of power to rule over others. Whenever the church seeks dominion or loftiness or expresses itself in pride, it has become a refuge for unclean things. Here's what it looks like. This is what the Cape Coast Castle should have been like. In Matthew 21, we have Jesus' triumphal entry which culminated in his entrance into the temple where men were trafficking in things other than righteousness and truth. The temple was full of unclean things in the name of God. Jesus drove them out, making a really big mess and a loud racket. He called them robbers. He said, you've made my house a den of robbers. You know what that means? A den is a safe place, a safe place for predators. That's what he said. They had profaned God's temple. All those who needed assistance after he did this, cleaned it out. All those who needed assistance then came into the temple. The lame, the blind, the little ones came when it was cleansed of the robbers. Before God's temple was profaned, now it is graced and honored. And you know what it became literally? <laughs> a hospital and a nursery. The chief priests were really ticked off. And they asked if Jesus could hear what these children were saying. They were singing Hosanna, which means save now. And Jesus responds with Psalm 8 2 through the praise of children and infants. Those are the most vulnerable humans on earth, right? 
through the praise of the most vulnerable, you, God, have established strength against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. That's backwards from the way we think. Great things are accomplished through the little ones, the weak ones, and the vulnerable ones. And when their cries in our temples are heard, God is glorified. It's fascinating to see, look carefully at what followed Jesus' actions. Because when the traffickers of unrighteousness go out, the blind and the lame come in. And he healed them. So there's your hospital. That was the first thing. And then the children singing Hosanna. Saving, protecting, refuge for the vulnerable are the way the house of our God is to look. And when you and I silence the cries of these little ones, for the vulnerable, we are not protecting God's house. We are actually profaning it. What power the voices of little ones have if we heed their cries? Do you understand that if the church heeds the cries of the vulnerable, the scripture says it has power to silence our enemy. That's upside down. When we follow our Lord into these dungeons, we bring him with us and his redemptive power, not just into the lives of those we help, but it will transform us as well. Because doing that work produces Christ-likeness in us. I know that's true because God has used battered and broken lives of many victims of many kinds to do his redemptive work in me. They have been his gift and his teacher to me. I am not the same person I was four decades ago. Given what Jesus did in driving out those who took what was not theirs, thereby profaning his temple bringing in and welcoming the little and the weak who establish strength against God's enemies. How then can his church silence the abused, the little, the vulnerable, the weak? Because if we do, we profane his name, we profane his church, and we increase the voice of the enemy. It's my prayer that you and I, as the body of Christ, will be bold and driving out unrighteousness wherever we find it, including here, welcoming the lame and the blind and the little and the weak, thereby establishing power against God's enemy and silencing his foes. May our chapels be full of love and truth, and may you also learn how to go down into the dungeons of your own heart first knowing that all power is his, seeking to be like him, and then from that place and that place alone, going out into the dungeons of this world and bringing him with you, taking with you our great, all-powerful God who became quite small on our behalf. Thank you. <laughs>